This is the seventh in a series of ten messages on gospel-driven outreach. Uh, thus far, we have looked at the essential nature of the call, of who it is that sends us, of how we are to do this, understanding that this is a shared endeavor that we take on as a community. Uh, we have looked at how it is that we are to rightly view the people around us, uh, that we are also part of a much larger story caught up into something much greater than ourselves, and, that is, and then also the absolute necessity of praying as we would speak and live before a watching world. It's quite comprehensive, just those seven already, and we have yet three more to go. Uh, with all of that said, it begs the question, what then are we to say? What are we to say? By that, I don't mean the, the verbiage. I don't mean simply the phrasing. I don't mean to get into the weeds and the details of, of something like that. That's, of course, completely dependent upon who you're speaking with and where they are and the flow of conversation. And it's much more natural than I think we sometimes make that out to be. So I'm not talking about words, per se. I'm speaking of the message itself. What is it? that we are to convey. What is the message that we have been given by God Himself as we go forth into this world? If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. Now, if you're trying to find Romans, that's, that's fine. Uh, maybe you're not able to quite get your hand on there. It's, it's one of the books of the New Testament, one of the earlier books of the New Testament. Uh, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have Acts, Romans. Romans begins as a series of, of what we call sometimes the New Testament epistles or the letters. There, and Paul is the author of this one. Romans chapter 3 is that we began the service, you may, may remember, going back several minutes ago, uh, setting the, the dark backdrop they're reading that quote there from Francis Schaeffer as he's commenting on the text that immediately precedes what I'm about to read now. That was the dark backdrop. That was the bad news. That's the sobering, that's the two-by-four that needs to hit us right upside the head. Lest we be deluded in terms of uh, how good of folks we think we are. Well, moving from there, there's a shift, a profound shift that takes place and you can see this with the very first word, but, as Paul begins, he makes a, a shift, an absolute shift, a radical change in the flow of the thought here. So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, and then reading on just on to verse 26. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, on through verse 26. Let's hear now the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for uh, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, thank you for grabbing him by the, the throat, so to speak, there on that Damascus road, showing him, having prepared him really, but that there in that climactic moment, showing him who you are, the true and living God, the very one that we have been confessing and speaking of from Psalm 47. It is you, Lord Jesus. You are the, the mighty one, the matchless king over all the earth, to whom all the nations owe their worship and adoration, indeed our very lives. Oh, we ask that you'd help us to see what is the message? What are the essentials? What is it that we need to have boring in to our very hearts that it might then come forth in some poor way from our lips and in our lives. And we ask that you would do that, ask you to help us to see that and live out of that. We pray in your name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with uh, uh, the 1986 film, The Mission. It's quite a film. Uh, the story of a Jesuit priest named Gabriel, uh, played by Jeremy Irons, and a, a mercenary, a scoundrel of of sorts, played by Robert De Niro. His character's name is Mendoza. So you have Gabriel and Mendoza. And uh, let me pick up and read, kind of set the, 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 say, the stage for you, a, of a dialogue, an exchange that takes place between these, these two men. Uh, Gabriel, or Gabriel, is commissioned to build a mission there in South America for the Guarani Indians, and on the way he meets Mendoza. And Mendoza is, uh, well, he's not just a mercenary, he's a slave trader. And he has made slaves of some of these Guarani people, the very folks that Gabriel Gabriel has been sent to minister to. He's also killed his brother in a fit of rage in a fight, a jealous fight, uh, about another woman that they shared interest in, I guess you could say. But he had, he had loved his brother. And so now uh, Mendoza is just undone, absolutely inconsolable, trapped in a prison of his own making, of, of guilt and regret, Gabriel, Gabriel attempts to persuade this guilt-stricken man to accompany him up into the hills, into the mountains, to that very village, that Guarani village, uh, where he has been committing so many of his terrible crimes. That's the stage. Okay? Here's the exchange now between the two. Speaking words of hope, Gabriel says, there is life. The slave trader counters, there is no life. Gabriel says, there is a way out, Mendoza. For me, there is no redemption, Mendoza says. Gabriel responds, God gave us the burden of freedom. You chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare do that? There is no penance hard enough for me. But do you dare try it? Do I dare? Do you dare to see me fail? Well, if you've seen the film, you may know what happens next. This arduous journey then begins. It's a little harder, though, for Mendoza than everybody else because he has been burdened with a sack of armor that he has to carry upon his back to reach that village. These men, the party, have to cross not just over fields and mountains, but waterfalls and up cliffs. 
Now that would be difficult enough even for the most experienced hiker and climber. It's well nigh impossible when you have a pack of armor on your back. It's a dramatic scene. I won't spoil for you. No spoiler at this point, okay? I won't spoil for you what happens when they get to the top, or even if they get to the top, for that matter. Um, but I think it raises a question. Frankly, even back in 1986 when I saw this film, and I knew even less then than I know now, it disturbed me. Because I think it raises a question. What sort of redemption is Mendoza seeking? And where does he think he's going to find it? And in whom does he think, ultimately, he's going to find it? Because you understand, then, that this, this path of penance that Mendoza has been set upon, this, this trial of trying... It, well, it assumes that he can somehow um, offset the heinousness of his crimes with this meritorious effort and struggle and work. It assumes that somehow in the grand scale of God's divine justice, he can offset his demerits with his merits. Right? That's, that's the governing assumption with this whole thing. That's how we think too. In all of life, right? I mean, it's how we approach all of life. You know, with, with school and sports, and work, whatever your career is, I mean, we're, we're thinking that, that you know, I, I do this and I will get that. I work hard enough in this way and it will deserve, it will earn, it will merit me, you know, that. You insert the coin and you get this coming out the other end. And then we carry that on into the spiritual realm, to, to our relationship with God. And we think that, oh, well, that's the way he works, too. We have this instinct that something is wrong. That something is wrong between us and God, and we come to understand when we're honest in the 3 a.m. test in another way, you might say, that that actually has a lot to do with us, that which has gone wrong. And so then we make the next step in our, our thinking this through, that, okay, well, then we need to make it right and that we can make it right. Well, all that thought process is about half right. It's right in the sense that, yes, our busted up, broken relationship with God does need to be fixed. But it utterly fails, and disastrously so, in assuming that we can do it that we can actually repair the breach, bridge the gulf. We have no ability whatsoever. At all. In no way is this a cooperative effort between the sinful man or woman and the holy God of the universe. Not at all. Not at all. Which takes me then to our text and, and um, the message. What is the message? The message that we have been given. We have indeed. Folks, we have, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have, we have together and individually been given a message for the world. And that message is absolutely, utterly, positively, unlike anything the world has ever heard. 
We have been given a message, but here's the thing. It, it, that message is absolutely, positively, unlike anything the world has ever heard. Three components to this message that, that come out in this text that, that bear out what I'm saying very clearly, that it's unlike anything the world has ever heard. The grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the place of faith. Those three things, each one and all of them, are completely unlike anything the world has ever heard. We need to hear it, daily so, as we take it out, as we go forth. It's an otherworldly message that we have been given. Let's go through this list here, these three things. First, the grace of God. Answering the question, what is if, if, there, if this hope is if, of the gospel, what we speak of, if the hope of the gospel is so great, what is the source of this hope? Well, it's the grace of God. And you see this in verses 22 through 24, the text we read a little while ago. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. All right, there's a big, heavy term that Paul uses here that we need to have a good, clear grasp and understanding of. And the word is justification. All right? Justification is a word that comes from a legal context. All right? It comes from a courtroom setting. There's a, a, the courtroom, there's the judge, there's the bailiff, there's the prosecuting attorney, and there's the defendant. That would be us standing in the dock. Okay? So in this legal context, there is this legal declaration that is made from the judge to the defendant. And the, the, the declaration goes something like this. Your guilt and your shame has been removed. And your record has been replaced with the blameless, shameless, innocent one of another. Now, I don't know any courtroom on earth that works that way. There is none. But that's the way it works in heaven's courtroom. The, the, rep the removal, such that, okay, now the, the slate is clean, but now you aren't standing there in the courtroom with just nothing. It's the removal of the one and the replacement with another. That's justification, a legal standing, a, a new status pronounced and bestowed upon you as you stand there in the courtroom of heaven. How does that come about? Well, Paul tells us it comes as a gift. You think in terms of the contrast of what we deserve with what we receive, verse 22 um, Let's see, picking up about halfway through verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. The legal declaration that we deserve is not justified, but condemned. That's what we actually Deserve. That's an utter stark contrast, thinking back to the, you know, the dark backdrop and the, the precious gem and that sort of thing. There's an utter stark contrast between what we deserve and what we receive, and that is God's unmerited favor, His righteousness. 
His righteousness becomes ours. You see that's alluded to in verse 21. And before I read that, I just want to let you just help you understand that when, when you see in your English translations, and most of them do it this way, when it says the righteousness of God in places in Romans, and this is one of them, it really has the meaning of the righteousness from God, a righteousness given by God, a legal standing and status imputed to, given to, graced to, mercied to us. So let me just now, if you will, reread that. But now the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning apart from what we do, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bears witness to us. The righteousness from God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. We'll talk about that. The point being, the message that we bear is of the grace of God. That's the point. The message we bear, part of that, is the grace of God. Despite the struggles, this is what we, this is what we want to need to hear and convey. Despite whatever uh, we've done, despite whatever our struggles may be, despite uh, whatever secrets may we may hide or hurts that we have caused, that is the hope set before us of a radically beautiful new legal status before God that is outside of ourselves. As Martin Luther said, we talked about this last week, an alien righteousness, something that comes from outside us, is given to us, but is ours. Fully ours. That is the message. We've been given this message for the world. A message for the world, and it's unlike anything the world has ever heard. The grace of God, which then takes us to the second point. The cross of Christ. Okay, so that's the source of our hope, but what is the, the grounds of our hope? How can this be? How can this be? Verses 24 and 25. Paul makes it very clear how this can be. Uh, we, picking up where he's in the flow of thought, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by Faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, what Paul is getting at here in talking about the grounds, the, the, the way how it's just possible that we could be justified, that we could have this new standing before God, he is, he's answering this question that demands to be addressed, this dilemma, the reality of a dilemma. For how can a God of mercy also be just? How can a God of justice still yet also be merciful? How can those two things coexist? How can it be that the guilty, mm, that would be us, how can the guilty go unpunished? How can that be without God condoning sin? How can that be without His compromising His Holiness, if that stands in that state, you understand that the moral order of the universe is destroyed. There's no possibility whatsoever to make any claims of right and wrong because nothing matters at that point if God's playing fast and loose with truth and right and wrong. We have no basis by which to say anything. This is the dilemma. 
It is a real dilemma, and Paul's speaking to that here, and he speaks to it with, well, oh, well, there's actually a real solution to this real dilemma, and that is the cross of Christ. And in the cross of Christ, and this is what Paul says in verse 26, God at the same time is just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier, as or as some wise sages have said through the years. At the cross, we see God's justice and His grace kiss. That's how it can be. With At the cross, you see these three things as Paul lays it out for us. The cross is the solution. The cross is the redemption of sinners. Redemption, that's, that's a word we think about it like in so many other ways, and it's wrongly used in so many ways, but the right understanding, at least Paul, excuse me, Paul's context, is the marketplace. A slave on the block, by, being bought, being sold. And redemption consists of the slave being bought in the marketplace to then be set free. And that's what Paul is speaking of here when he speaks of the cross of Christ as redemption. He speaks of the cross of Christ as a second thing, that is propitiation. The removal of God's wrath. The satisfaction of His holy, just fury. Redemption, propitiation, the cross of Christ. One other thing, a demonstration, a demonstration of God's justice showing us that this is what He had in mind all along. Verse 25, all along. This is not plan B. This is plan A from the start, from the very very start. The message that we bear is the cross of Christ, which therein makes possible the grace of God. And in fact, it is only through, it comes by, the grace of God. We are, every one of us, and every person that we will ever speak to, enmeshed, entrapped, enslaved. Enmeshed, entrapped, and enslaved to the ways of the world, the pull of the flesh, and the work of the devil. And with the cross of Christ, we have the hope of redemption, of being set free to serve the master that we were made to serve. That really isn't, doesn't feel like enslavement at all. It's actually freedom. It's the greatest freedom you can imagine. That's the message that we have. The message for the world. It is unlike anything this world has ever heard, which then takes us to the third point. Okay, so you have the grace of God. We have, okay, well, how is that possible? How is that established? What is the source of that? That's the, the grounds for that. That's the cross of Christ. But what is the means by which? How, how do we lay hold of that? How does that become ours? How does that connect to us individually? The place of faith. The place of faith. And it's three places, just going to fly right on through this text, there's three places where you see faith mentioned here in this short burst of verses in Romans 3. Uh, you see it in verse 22. Uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Skipping down to verse 25. Uh, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Then down to verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you see, given the amount of space and given the level of repetition that you see just in this brief span of text, 
Obviously, this is an emphasis. Paul is pressing this. We must understand this is the means by which the grace of God through the cross of Christ becomes ours. But what is it then? What is faith? Many ways to define this. I'm just going to break it down into two categories. One is an assent. That is to say, we understand. We understand the basic message of the gospel. Something like what we all you know, spoke of earlier with the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, basic Christianity, mere Christianity. There's an intellectual understanding, something, it has to begin somewhere, with that, of the essentials of the gospel. So an understanding of that, but also an acknowledging that it's true. It's not enough to just have the first. Understanding what it is and acknowledging that it's true, that would be what I'll put under the category of assenting. And then embracing. That would be the second part. Embracing. Where all that we understand and acknowledge, we are willing and gladly and humbly to confess and to live out of with the whole of our lives. Or if you want to think it in terms of this, it's the root and fruit. It's the manifestation of what we say with how we speak and live. Faith. Faith. Now, there's a clarification that's needed at this point because we can get our heads screwed around at, at, at this. And a lot of folks do, and so I want to just kind of clear the mist here if I can. Our faith is not the grounds of our salvation. You understand? The grounds of our salvation is the cross of Christ, what He has done. There is no value, there is no saving merit whatsoever in our faith. Again, as I said earlier, this is not a cooperative effort between us and God. Our faith is but the means. Our faith is but the instrument. Our faith is but the, the, the way we lay hold of what He has already done. You've, some of you have heard me say this, this mantra. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the message that we bear. That's the message that we bear. The place of faith. The object of our faith is the finished work of Christ. Our faith is but the eye that looks to Him. The hand that reaches out and lays hold of the gift that He gives to us. The mouth that drinks in the living water of life. That is our faith. That is the message for the world that we bear. And again, this is unlike anything the world has ever heard. It really truly is. This is an otherworldly message. The grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the place of faith. Now, early we, be we began with the mission and talk of a man and a burden. I want to tell you another story as a polar opposite to that. Some of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. It's the allegorical tale of a man named Christian, his conversion, his journey of faith, and the struggles along the way that he faces. Early on in the tale, some of you may be familiar with this, others, that's fine. Uh, this is a scene, and I want to read to you what John Bunyan wrote so many years ago from jail, The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I saw in my dream that the... This is, by the way, it's in your quotes and notes. It's one of them. I'm not sure which one. But it's, it's, it's in there. It's a big one. Um, 
And now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that way was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. But he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. You see the, the, the difference? The contrast between Mendoza and Christian. Mendoza has to, has to labor. He has to labor to lose his burden. Christian has it all done for him. It's done for him. The contrast could not be any more stark. And the reason is, is that what Bunyan is writing of in the Pilgrim's Progress is consistent with the Gospel. And Mendoza's experience is not. The Gospel is not advice, counsel, and instruction as to how to carry or get rid of our burden. The Gospel is how Jesus has borne that burden off of us and taken it away. That's why it's good news. And that good news is unlike anything this world has ever heard. And that's the message we bear. Let's pray.